The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to continue our study into the attributes of an effective witness of Christ today. I've looked, we've looked at uh, seven different things so far. We, we said that, I said that in order to be a, a, an effective witness, a Christian must be mature, or at least he must be maturing. He must be growing, and he must become, be becoming more and more uh, grounded in, in, in the Lord and in his word. But there are some attributes we can, we can see uh, in, in those that are mature and are effective in their witness for Christ. The first one we said was availability. And by availability, we talked about being prepared to go. Uh, you need to be a person who understands the need for us to, to go and, and preach and witness. And that's difficult for a lot of people. A lot of people have convinced themselves they don't have time to go. They don't have opportunity to go. Yet, we have opportunity every day. We run into people every day, don't we? Uh, I, you know, working in a, in a different environment than I'm used to, I, I don't, I don't, push my my faith on anyone i don't i don't push my belief but i i do have people approach me privately and ask me questions and i need to be prepared when they do uh, and i need to be available to god in my heart and mind to be able to to give them gospel truth and to be able to witness to them secondly uh, I, I talked about attitude attitude being determined to obey uh, obedience is is not is 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 not an accident obedience is an acquired trait. It's one we must learn, and it's one we must exercise. If you don't believe that, then parents, don't ever correct your children. Just just leave them alone, and let let's see if they if they learn to obey. I can promise you they won't. The Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. You don't have to teach children to lie. You don't have to teach them to to be de- devious. You don't have to teach them to steal. They're going to do those things naturally. Uh, but obedience is an acquired trait, and we have to have an attitude. Toward obedience at every instance in your life, young people, um, old people like me, you have to have a determination that at every instant you're going to do what's right, regardless of the consequences. My grandfather raised me to believe this. I would rather suffer for the truth than benefit from a lie. And I think that's an attribute you need to teach your children. It's better to get in trouble for the truth than it is to deceive and get away with something for a lie. Because be sure your sin will find you out. Sooner or later, it's going to arrive. I've heard it said God's pay train runs slow, but it's always on schedule. So remember that. Thirdly, we talked about appreciation. And appreciation it is that obligates us to serve. You know, when, when you are obligated to something... It's it's not something that you necessarily don't appreciate. And if we truly appreciate the, the grace that's been given us and the gift of eternal life that we have, the election we have in Christ, then that obligates us. Paul says, though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. And we are obligated to serve. Then we talked about, fourthly, accountability. Accountability. Now, this is something a lot of Christians don't want to get involved in. They don't want to be accountable. They want to be able to do what they want to do and not have to answer to anyone for it. But yet, I am accountable to every one of you. When I walk out the doors of this church, as you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I am accountable to, to, to behave myself and to conduct myself in a manner that does not embarrass our church, does not shame our Lord, and does not 
reflect poorly on you. And by the way, you have the same obligation to me. And we are accountable to one another. I'm tired of hearing Christians say, well, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm sorry, but yes, there is. Jesus can tell you what to do because he purchased you with his own blood. God can tell you what to do because he's created you and he's redeemed you. And we need to be accountable, uh, accepting responsibility. And then fifthly, we talked about amiability. And that is living with kindness, being kind and tenderhearted, the Bible says, uh, toward one another and, and being, being gentle and and, and, and considerate to each other. Kindness. The Bible says, he that hath friends must show himself a grouchy, right? Uh, it doesn't say that he that hath friends must show himself to be grouchy. It says, he that hath friends must show himself to be what? Friendly. And we, we need to live our life with kindness and compassion and understanding and patience and all these things. And, and realize, you know, when people get under pressure, when people are stressed out, they often will say things and do things they, they would not normally say or do, and they don't even really necessarily mean. You ever, you ever had someone just snap at you? Just literally almost bite your head off? Huh? You're all looking at me like that's never happened to you. It's happened to me, and I generally try to walk away and, and just be patient with that person and understand, say, Lord, you know, whatever's bothering them, if I can help them, let me help them, uh, relieve them of this pressure. Because sometimes people just get in a foul mood, in a bad mood, and, and lose control of, their, of themselves and, and, and say things that they don't really mean. So let us learn to be amiable. Let us learn to be kind. Then last week we talked about contentment, and that is satisfied with God's provision, contentment, learning to be happy with the situation that God has placed you in, the, being happy with the provisions that God has seen fit to give you. I mean, I, I'm like most people, you know. I'd like, to, I'd like to own my own home. I'd like to live in a big, nice, comfortable home and, and drive a, uh, well, I drive a Ford. You can't get any better than that. But uh, have a new automobile and, and all these things. I like those things as much as anyone else. But you know what? God knows. God knows what I need. And God knows what I can handle. And he has given me those things. And I need nothing else. Now, my flesh says, oh, you need this and you need that. You know, Market Street says, oh, you need this. Go out and buy it today. And, and all these things. But God knows what I need. He provides what I need. He gives me what I need. And he, he keeps what I can't handle away from me. And praise him for that. And be content. Paul said, having therefore food and raiment, let us be therewith content. For it is, he said, we brought nothing into this world and we're taking nothing out. So be happy with what you have. Be content with where you are. Always strive to do the best you can, but don't become envious and jealous. Don't be driven by, by greed. Just learn to be content. And then we talked last week about commitment. And by commitment, we, we refer to undying loyalty. Commitment to the Lord. Uh, 33 years ago, I made a commitment to my Savior. And I've done everything I can for the past 33 years to live up to that commitment and to, to, to stay uh, to honor the, my promises to God, to honor my commitments to God, and to stay faithful to him. And I haven't always succeeded uh, in every individual instant in my life. I'd be lying to you if I told you I, I have. I've never wavered in my faith. I'd be a liar. We all have. But ultimately, in, our, in the course of our life, we remain committed to God, that undying loyalty. So now we've examined seven attributes of a mature believer. It is God's will that we grow. 
and mature as believers. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, we read, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So God desires that we would grow and that we would develop as, as, as his children. Growth in a human is a lifelong process. Now, most of us, we stop growing this way, but we keep growing this way, right? Yeah, that's what happened to me. I, you know, I'm, I, I always I always used to tell people, I'm, I'm not overweight, I'm just too short. That's, that's what happened to me, I'm too short. I should be six foot eight, and said, I'm five foot 11, and, and so, you know, that's the problem. Uh, we experience growth in one form or another from the moment we are conceived until the moment we die. And we are constantly involved in a process of growth. And just as with physical growth, we also go through a process of maturity. And this maturity is also applicable to our spiritual man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul states, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. As believers... We are to grow and mature in our spiritual self. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he was a newborn babe in Christ, he behaved like a newborn babe in Christ. But as he, as he grew, as he matured, as he developed, he put away all those childish things in his spiritual life and behaved as a man, as, a, as an adult. Uh, and, and this translated into every aspect of our Christian life, especially as it pertains to our witness for Christ. As we mature, as we grow in knowledge, and as we grow in understanding, we gain more confidence, we gain more faith, and we are, we are more, more uh, effective in our witness to other people. Uh, people see you, and they, they see your mature behavior as, as a believer, and they're drawn to that uh, by, by God's Spirit. And, and as Peter said, let us be ready to give an answer. Let us be ready to to answer those who have questions concerning our faith. And that's maturity. And, and that's uh, the attributes that we desire. So with this in mind, I would like to continue by considering a couple of other attributes today that we find in the mature believers. So number eight on your study sheet is this, compassion. The attribute of compassion, which is the heart of Christ. Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, please. Let's all turn together if you'd like to. If you prefer to just listen, you can do so. I promise you I won't lie to you. I'll, I'll only be accurate scripturally. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 35 of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. We read here. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now look at verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. I want you to take special note of that, that term there, moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. We see here in this passage of scripture a clear presentation 
of the compassion of Christ. Now, we know that Jesus, by human standards, was little more than a transient himself, right? As we, as we look at Jesus from a, from a human aspect, we, we have to acknowledge that, that he lived the, the life of a transient. He had no place of his own. In fact, in scripture, he even stated this. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, we read, And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus had no, he had no home. He had no, no lodging place. He had no dwelling place. If Jesus were alive today and, and on, and in our in our world today, probably he would be viewed by the world as a homeless man, as someone just a transient, someone who has who has no place. He he he'd be a vagrant because he carried no money, and and uh, you know we all know that a, the definition of a vagrant is someone who has no no address where he lives and no money and no identification, and and so Jesus by human standards was little more than a transient in his day. He had no earthly wealth. This we also know was true because what did he do when it was time to pay taxes? Well, he sent Peter fishing, right? In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 27, we read, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. So Jesus had no wealth. He, he, the only thing he owned was the clothes on his back. And that, that was it. Uh, I'm sure that there was, they had a little money. The, the disciples had a little money that would, that would be given to them by those that loved the Lord and wanted to help him in his work on this earth. And, and we know that Judas carried the purse. He, he was the treasurer of the group and, so they had some money, but they had no real wealth. Jesus had, he had no earthly wealth whereby he could really help a lot of people. Yet, there has never lived a man with more compassion than he. I mean, think about it for a moment. Who do you, who do you think are probably some of the most embittered people in the world? Well, I would think those that have become caught up in, 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 in that, that, such trouble in their life that they end up on the street, the homeless and, and many of those people, they, they don't have much compassion and they're bitter and they're, they're, they're angry and, and probably have, in some cases, have, have a right to be. But Jesus, though he had no place to call his own, though he had no earthly wealth, though he, though he, he had people who were trying to kill him, no one has ever had more compassion than the Savior. Though he had nothing of earthly value to give to others, he gave more than all the wealth of the world could provide. I mean, think about that for a moment. All the riches in the world could not impart to anyone what Jesus was able to impart to them. Think about, think about blind Bartimaeus, who had been blind from birth. All the money in the... All the the money in, in the world at that time could not buy him his sight. Think about the ten lepers who came to Jesus. All the money that they could have amassed could not cleanse their bodies of the leprosy. But Jesus, 
who had so little to give, gave so much. And he did that because he had a heart of compassion. And this is an attribute that God's people need to develop. And by the way, let me say this. Today, as you sit here, you too have much to give. Much to give. And Acts, turn with me as a matter of fact to Acts chapter 3. Let's turn there. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 1 of Acts chapter 3. Let's begin there at verse number 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Now, I want to stop right here and I want want to remind you of something. Jesus told his disciples something when he was still with them about their ministry as they traveled. What did he say? He said, carry no what? No, not no purse. He said, carry no money in your purse. In other words, he was trying to teach his disciples, don't be greedy for money. Live your life, serve, serve me, go forth and help others without coveting money. So in other words, he's not saying don't have any money on you. But he's saying, don't try to amass money. Don't, don't, don't be greedy for lucre and don't, don't try to amass a, a, a lot of money that you have for yourself. Just go and, and trust me and I'll provide for you as you go. Okay? So remember that. Peter and John had no money. At least not enough to be able to really do anyone any good. And then in verse 2, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. So here we have this man sitting at the temple gate, and he's, he's begging because he has no way to, to, to earn money, so he's asking people for help. In verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. So here, here they're looking at him. They, they see this man and they say, look at me. So this man probably thought, oh boy, I'm, I hit the jackpot. These guys are going to give me some money. They're going to give me a lecture first, but they're going to give me what I want. They're going to give me some money, okay? And then verse 5, and he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. See? So he thinks, I'm going to get something, so I'm going to listen. I'll, 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 I'll play the game. That's what he's saying. Then verse 6, Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, I'm not speaking here about you and I having the ability to, to, to having much to give. I'm not talking about money. We, we, you, you may not have a lot of money that you can give. You know, if you're, if, if God has provided abundantly for you and you have money that you can give to, to mission projects and things like that, praise the Lord and thank God for it. But you know what? If you don't, you don't have to sit back in the pew and say, boy, you know, I wish I could do something because you can do something. There's a lot we can do. We have the knowledge of Christ, and we need to give that to those around us. Those who are, those who are hurt, those who are, 
who are, who, are, who are begging, those who are dying spiritually, you and I have so much to give them. And we need to understand that. You know, I, I just think we get into a rut and we convince ourselves the only way we can really show compassion is to give money. And, and, and that's kind of the direction a lot of people have gone today. And because you can't give a lot of money, you, do, you feel like you don't have any obligation to do anything else. I'm not talking about charitable contributions. I'm not talking about pity. I'm not talking about simple sympathy. Jesus had much more than pity on those that he saw. His feeling went much further than just sympathy. We read in Matthew 90, chapter 9, verse 36 a moment ago, that he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. This literally means that in his, in his inner self, he, he had pains of sorrow for them. He didn't just have pity for them, he, he, he agonized for them. He, 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 he wept for them. He, he ached for them in his heart. He had such compassion. Their plight of weariness in their heart. These people were weary from the, from the sin in their life. They were weary from the needs that they had. They, they were weary from the suffering they were going through. Their distress <laughs> at the burdens of the traditions of religious men. They, these people were so burdened down by the Pharisees with traditions that they, they, they were simply in distress at trying to live the life that they were supposed to live. I've seen that so many times. In my last 33 years, I've seen I've seen movements and churches that will lay heavy burdens upon people, burdens that we that people can't carry. Their helplessness. He saw the helplessness in their life against the sin that controlled them. They were helpless against sin. I was helpless against sin before I was saved. There were things in my life that I knew were wrong, that I knew I shouldn't do. But I didn't have the, the, the power. I didn't have the ability to overcome them. And you could probably say the same thing today. Things in our life, and I'm not talking about vile, wicked things. I'm just talking about sin. Things that, that are sinful and, the, and they control us. And we know we shouldn't do them. I mean, we don't want to do them, but we do them because they control us. And we, we had no power over those things. And, and Jesus is looking at these people and he's seeing their weariness and he's seeing their distress and he's seeing their helplessness. And these things brought him grief and sorrow so, such that he could not ignore it. Sometimes we may see things that make us sad, things that we pity. We may, we may, we may look at the television set and see some some poor child in Africa or some poor child in India who has no parents, four, five, six-year-old children whose parents have died from disease and, and they're alone. They have no one to care for them and they're, they're going through garbage heaps to try to survive. And we look at that and we feel such sorrow, but what do we do? We, we can relieve that sorrow by doing what? Changing the channel. And then we change to a comedy show and then we sit back and all of a sudden we laugh and, and, and we forget, don't we? It's gone. Well, that wasn't Jesus. He could not ignore it. He could not turn away from it. He was moved to do something about it. And that is what we need. Let's bring this to where we live today. As are we truly men and women of compassion? 
Do you know someone this morning? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you know someone this morning that is not saved? I mean, right now, if the Lord puts a name in your mind of someone that you know is not saved, well, let me ask you, do you block that out? Do you change the channel? Do you quell the desire to do something about it? Do you know someone that is weary from religion today? This last week, I had someone come up to me and said, can you tell me the difference between all these different churches and all these different faiths? And folks, I'm telling you, I don't approach anyone. I work in a room with 27 people. I don't talk to any of them about anything. But if they catch me in the break room or if they catch me down the hallway, they'll stop and they'll say, hey, what about this? And a young lady today, she has a little girl. She, she lives in Rona Park, goes to church in San Rafael, and uh, her name is Janelle. I want you to pray for her. Janelle, and, and she said, you know, I'd like to find some church close by where I can, I can bring my daughter to church. And I talked to her about our Pioneer Club on Sunday night. Hopefully in the next few weeks she'll come. But she said, I don't understand. What's the difference between all these, these faiths and all these things? And, and, and she's, so, she's so burdened by, by religion. And there are so many people that are weary from religion. Do you know someone like that? Do you know someone that is living under the bondage of sin, someone that's just trapped? Maybe, maybe they're an alcoholic and their family life is being destroyed. Maybe they're on drugs and, and, and their, their, their home is being ripped apart. Their children are, are so sad. Brian sent us an email request this week for a boy who, who sent in and asked that we would pray for his family because his mom and daddy fight all the time. There's so much sorrow in this world, so much sadness. But what do we do? We change the channel. We, we block it out. Jesus, Jesus couldn't. He couldn't block it out. If you know someone like this, what are you doing about it? Are you, are you witnessing to these people? Are you, are you sharing the love of Christ with them? Oh, we all, we're all about celebrating Christmas. But why did Jesus come? He came for us. He came to die. And he's given us so much, yet we give him back so little. Well, we'll say, I'm praying for them. Well, that's wonderful. Pray for them. But there are times when men need more than our prayers. Like the Good Samaritan. Maybe the Pharisee and maybe the Levite prayed for that man. Maybe they felt sorry for him. They just changed the channel, though, didn't they? They went around him and went on down the road. But that Good Samaritan, he had the heart of Christ. He couldn't go away. He looked at him, he said, oh, goodness. And, and he risked a lot doing that. Because those thieves could have still been hiding, waiting for someone to stop to help him. And he could have fallen prey himself, but he didn't care about that. He had no concern for himself. He only had compassion upon that man that needed him. A mature believer is an effective witness for Christ. And an effective witness for Christ is a believer with much compassion. A compassion that compels us. To make a difference in the life of those that God brings into our path. Jude tells us in verse 22 of his book. And of some have compassion. Making a difference. You know folks only eternity. Only when we stand in the presence of Christ. Will we see how big of an impact we had on those around us. Sometimes you may feel like, well, you know, I do, I do a lot of things, but it just doesn't seem to do any good. Well, you'll see one day. One day you'll stand, you'll stand in heaven 
and there'll be a sea of people there who were impacted by something you may have done or said. So remember that. So compassion is an attribute we need to have. The heart of Christ. But then number nine this morning and quickly, I want to I talk about the attribute of consistency. Consistency. Being fixed in our focus. James, in James chapter 1 and verse 8, wrote this. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, what exactly does James mean by a double-minded man? Well, from the context of his writing, we can only deduce that he's talking about someone with wavering faith. Someone whose faith is up today, down tomorrow. My bank account's full, I'm happy. I had an overdraft, I'm sad. My investments went good today. They didn't go so good tomorrow. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. When they're happy, they, they, they get all involved in the church. And when they're not, you don't see them for weeks on end. If we are going to be effective in our life for Christ, we have to be consistent. Now, you know, I know Pastor Smith. When he stands in his pulpit, he's not always the happiest guy in the world. Okay? I know that. He confides in me a little bit. I'm not going to give you any of his deep, dark secrets. Well, maybe for $100 I will. But there are times when I come in and I say, how you doing, Pastor? Well, you know, I'm struggling. But, you know, one thing about him, he's consistent. Amen? He gets in that pulpit and does what God expects him to do. He doesn't waver in his faith. He doesn't get shook up by the things that are happening around him. You see, it's, it's, it's not unusual for us as believers to have our faith tested or challenged, to, to, to become somewhat despondent at times, a little discouraged. But it is not right for us to stay there. And it is not right for us to let it affect us. Because we have to draw on the fact that no matter what we're going through, we are the children of God. The worst thing can happen to you is something take your life. And if it does, then you're with the Lord. And you need to understand that. And you need to realize that your mission in this life is not to amass money, not to amass property, not to amass uh, goods. Your purpose in this life is to praise and glorify God and to be a witness of his great and glorious gospel. That's your purpose in life. So no matter what you may do, Tom sells tires. But I know Tom well enough to know that that's just a means to an end. Tom loves, Tom loves the Lord, and he, he witnesses to those, I'm sure, that comes to his shop. Brian builds websites. But I know Brian's heart, and I know that Brian has a desire to serve the Lord. I don't know what Bob does, but whatever it is, I'm sure it's important. <laughs> no, I'm joking. He fixes cars that don't need fixing, Volvos. Most dependable cars in the world. No matter what we do in this life, we do it to provide for our family and we do it because you know I tell you the last two years I was I was often thinking Lord why why the but you know pastor mentioned what Zella was telling him the other day and you know that's exactly what's happening I'm God has put me in a place where there are lots of people that need to need to know about him 
And of course, given the, given the, the, what's the word I want? Given the temperature, I guess, of, of, or the political correctness of things, I, I can't stand up in the middle of the office and preach. I could, but I'd be out of a job the next day. But I can be like Peter said, be ready to give an answer to those that ask you. And we need to understand that even when we're in the pursuit of our daily jobs, we need to be, we need to be consistent in our faith. We need, to be, we need to be consistent. You know, it's so sad. One of my associates was on the phone the other day with a pastor. And this pastor was screaming and yelling at this guy so loud, we could hear it in his headset. And when he hung up the phone, several of them started, oh, yeah, those pastors, they're the worst of the lot. And I stood up, I said, now, wait a minute, let's don't start stereotyping here. And they all said, oh, we're sorry. You're right. We're sorry. I said, you know what? There are a lot of bad ones out there, but there are a lot of good ones, too. And when we're in our job, be consistent in your faith. Defend your faith when it needs to be defended. Give an answer to those that, that ask of you. Don't become don't become so involved in making a paycheck that you forget that you're an ambassador for Christ. You are a witness for Jesus. And what you do in your life is a witness. So live your life right. Be consistent. That's what James means. So let me break down just for a moment a consistent man. Let me give you three thoughts and we'll be done. First, he is confident in his mind. He possesses confidence because of his knowledge and understanding of God and his will, which gives him a clear point of view. He's not confused in spiritual things. He's, he, he's not shaken by, by false things. He, he's confident in his mind. He, he's grounded. Why? 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Spend the time that it takes to learn the truth. This, this, fundamental, this fundamentals of the faith that pastor is going to start in January. I tell you what, I'm going to be at every one of them. Because this is exactly the kind of thing you need in order to be grounded. And we need, to, we need to, to involve ourselves in those types of things and, and the study that it takes to know the Lord. But this, com- he's, this man is confident in his mind. But secondly, he is careful in his thoughts. He is careful in his thoughts. His knowledge and understanding causes him to remain focused on the things that are of true importance. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And, and a, a consistent man is one who has his mind under control. He's careful about what he, what he thinks about. He's careful about his decision making and his thought processes. And then thirdly, the consistent man, he is constant in his prayers. He is confident in his, in his mind, he is careful in his thoughts, and he is constant in his prayers. James reminds us in James chapter 5 and verse, 13, verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. Then listen to what he says. 
the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Did you hear that? Much is accomplished, James is saying. Much is accomplished by the prayer life of a mature believer. I praise the Lord for for people who, who are constant in prayer, people like Zella. People like, I know Pauline and Tom are faithful in their prayer life. Melissa and Tabor. Tabor tells me every time he sees me, we're praying for you. And I believe that. Uh, A mature believer is one who is constant in prayer and, and spends time in prayer. I must wonder this morning, how much of us here really have witnessed God moving mountains for us? You know, many years ago, and I, I have to hurry, but years ago, um, we had that converted Roman Catholic priest. What was his name? Buer, Harry Buer. And, and he visited us once when I was in Louisiana, and I was driving him around. And this is what he told me. He said, you know, people in Europe, when he, when he goes there, they, they, they often told him, would you go back and teach Americans how to pray? Because they can look at us and see we have no prayers, prayer life in America. That's sad. And we need to be constant in prayer. I pity any believer who has never experienced God's working in their life. And then I also feel sorry for those who once did, but now they are distant from the Lord and have not experienced his working in some time. Let us learn to be consistent in every aspect of our Christian life. And when we are, then we can truly rejoice in the Lord. Because we know he makes no mistakes. All right, folks. That's all I have time for this morning. Uh, And I thank you for being here. I hope it was helpful to you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.